Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. Submissions. Thank you for everyone who submitted stories during our first open submissions period in quite some time. Once we get a bit better feel for the flow of moving stories through our process, we hope to have more open submission periods. We very much want to cut down on the turnaround time of stories between submissions and airing. I'll tell you two little tidbits behind the scenes. The first you've heard before, but it still stands true. Our dearly missed departed founding host, we haven't run out of stories he accepted for airing. Those stories are now in the single digits, but we've got even more from Harry Markov, our first editor, quite a few more from Cher Eves, the good number of the ones that I approved while I did my turn as editor, and then a few more from Rock Manor, who is now over on his own podcast at Manor House. The second tidbit builds on that. In the past, we haven't done things in any semblance of chronological order, just in whatever order we sort of felt like. Now, it's a priority on the stories that have collected a film of dust and then trying to piece them together to fit our target runtime, which is a pretty fuzzy number, to be honest. But I think you knew that, dear listener. Oh, I'm getting away from myself. The second tidbit is that the second story you'll hear tonight has four years of dust on it. You heard me right. It's been four years since it has been submitted until this evening. Philip Oldham and Scott Silk don't want a story they give the thumbs up to to languish in our file server for four years before it makes its way to your ears. And that's why we've had submissions closed for so long. And finally, on a topic that's a bit more fun, our next six episodes, including this one, we will replace our normal ending song from our friend David Raiklin with some songs from a few friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Jonathan Reeder had brought these songs to me for Halloween, but unfortunately, due to our production cycle, we really couldn't fit them in in time for Halloween. In addition to the link in the show notes, here's a polite bit of information about the album Songs of the Pumpkin Boy, Volume 1. His spooky music compilation with contributions from Bilge, Anythings, Shane Tripp, and Book of Symbols. For our first story, lend your ears for a story from D.P. Watt. We've heard from Watt before, about 50 episodes ago. We heard his story, The Comrade, on episode 195. I've got a link to D.P. Watt's homepage in the show notes, and this is really the best place to dig into his work. The current work is The Whore is This Temple, from Ex Occidente Press. I'm typically one for getting books digitally, but the artistry on this one, wow. Click on through and take a look at it. Lend your ears. Here comes D.P. Watts' The Condition. All art constantly aspires towards the condition of music. Walter Pater, The Renaissance. 
I had not been back in the country long, but long enough to have felt the faint oppression of that malaise which had forced my departure three years before. To have received a letter from Bertram Wilson was the last thing I was expecting. We had been good friends at school, quite contrary to our interests, but had not maintained the friendship after leaving. I had been a precocious and arrogant exile from my peers. My interest in Eastern antiquities and anthropology had always ensured my exclusion from the mainstream pursuits of my contemporaries. Bertram Wilson was quite the opposite. A keen cricketer, the head prefect, and a member of the national badminton team, he was everything that I could never be, nor wanted to be. I sulked gloomily around the school buildings, with my obvious hatred of all they represented seething within me. It gave me a sense, misguided of course, of some power within me, a power to control their simple emotions and subjugate them to an ancient will that seemed to be surfacing slowly and painfully within me. These were the fantasies and megalomaniac impressions of an adolescent whose abhorrence of the ordinary, the mediocre, every day, had set him on a path to remote and unwholesome self-absorption. My brief career at university had sealed our separation. I found the confines of the city destructive to my work. Libraries had never been a particular passion of mine, and so I gradually forgot my studies for more carnal pleasures. In 1936, I left for Borneo and spent four incredible years drifting through the Indonesian islands, living with people and sharing their rituals and customs. Then the world broke in, and with the arrival of the Japanese, I caught one of the last boats back to England. Soon, I was conscripted, and the war worked its horror upon my mind. After being present at the liberation of Bergen-Belsen, my brittle mental state finally collapsed, and the years following the war were spent between institutions, the names of which I have forgotten. I gradually recovered my interests, and spent a slow decade becoming more bookish, researching my interests into the occult from the comfort of an armchair rather than the bowels of its practice. However, the books and articles could no longer keep me contented. I was eager to return to travel and discovery, and after a serendipitous inheritance, I departed England's dull post-war shores in the hope of permanent escape. Those three years had been most rewarding. I had seen practices of unbelievable power, conjurations of ancestors, spirits and demonic powers, bizarre sacrifices to deities long forgotten in the West, and magical incantations from the mundane to the extraordinary. The time vanished, and the money did too. Like many men of my age, with relatively minor financial means, I had become a decadent. Whilst others undid themselves and hid from their memories with drink and drugs, I had tried to vanish into an unreal other world of barbarism. Finally, though, with little money left, and a mind filled with ancient terrors, I returned to England, a country that was as alien to me now as those strange lands I had visited would to most of my countrymen. So there I stood, in a beachfront boarding house, reading a letter from Bertram Wilson. It was short enough. Dear Miles, I'm glad to hear of your return, and trust your expedition was worthwhile. I am sick. I would ask a favour of you, in memory of our old friendship. Please call on me here at St Agnes Hospice, at your earliest convenience, if you're so inclined. Your old friend, Bertram Wilson. It was clear enough. I did not know what had happened to Bertram during the war, but had a terrible feeling that his illness must somehow be connected to it. Perhaps seeing him again would help me settle back into the miserable greyness of my homeland. As it was imperative that I establish some sort of income, and soon, it seemed sensible also to see if Wilson might know of a suitable position. I admit that my initial thoughts were of myself. Any remaining vestige of European social conventions had vanished from my thoughts, so immersed was I in alternative communities. I would discover soon enough what condition troubled him. The hospice was located in London, a short enough train ride from Hastings where I was boarding. I believed that sea air would at least give me some feeling of freedom. I approached the city with foreboding, though. It was a symbol of all I had wanted to leave behind, 
security, civilization, progress, and most of all, knowledge. What have we discarded in this rush for technology and capital? All our old gods had withered now, laying bleeding and abandoned among the scrapyards and dole queues of Europe. <laughs> what did this wretched society know of values, of love and hate, of true sacrifice? Everything was reduced to numbers, to clocks, workloads and formula. I had to break my hatred of modernity, or I was lost again. I concentrated on the gentle rumble of the train upon the tracks, soothing myself into a trance. A short taxi ride from Victoria Station saw me to St Agnes's Hospice. It was a curious place, hidden inside a large private garden behind a tall hedge. Without the driver showing me to the very door, I would never have found it. It must have been run by nuns when first established over a century before, but now it was staffed by modern nurses. In a way, they seemed no different to a religious order. They were silent, almost devotional. They passed through the corridors and wards in their navy uniforms, dutiful servants to a higher order. At least it was to pure human compassion rather than the hollow God of the Holy Trinity. One nurse showed me to Wilson's room before rushing away to the sound of a bell from down the corridor. There was some clamour and a man began to scream. I was intrigued and I followed the commotion. I stood back from the doorway and watched as a nurse struggled to hold a grey-haired man down upon a bed whilst the one that had shown me to Wilson's room rushed to an old gramophone on the far side of the room. The man was screaming at the top of his voice, crying out against some kind of threat he imagined above him. The first notes from the record began to play and the man immediately relaxed, as though he had been sedated. His face settled into a calm composure, but his eyes still stared towards the ceiling, filled with a terrible void that I knew well myself. He was clearly much younger than his grey hair suggested. The nurse that had restrained him talked briefly with the other nurse and then left the room hurriedly. "'Excuse me, madam,' I said. "'Might I trouble you to tell me a little about that patient?' She eyed me suspiciously for a moment. "'Why,' she said, "'what is it you wanted to know?' I could hear the music through the door, and was sure I recognised it. "'That's Elgar, isn't it?' I asked. "'Yes, it is,' she replied. "'The nursery suite. "'It is the only thing that will calm him when he starts.' "'What happened to him?' I asked, recalling the short composition which had been dedicated to the royal princesses some years before. The nurse shook her head and sighed. The poor man lost his wife and child in the blitz, a direct hit, whilst he was struggling with the shelter door. The gramophone and a set of discs were in the shelter, and they are all that remained of the house and the family's belongings. He's been here ever since. When he remembers the event which happens most days, the only way to quieten him is to play the entire suite. Alice will be in there now for the next half hour or so, changing the discs. If you miss one, or don't change them rapidly enough, he has another fit, and you have to begin again. Sometimes I wonder if it wouldn't be best for him to go and join his wife too. She stared at me a moment, perhaps regretting telling me so much but I assumed he had no family left that might object to her indiscretion, and I was unlikely to tell anyone. Thank you, I said, rather quietly. Yes, she nodded. Now I must attend to my duties. I stood there outside the room of the shocked man and listened for a few minutes until the first movement finished and the nurse had to change the disc. It was indeed a child's sort of music, filled with moments of frivolity and gentle menace, Perhaps one might call it theatrical. I could imagine his child animating his or her dolls to the music whilst the loving parents looked on with joy. But those days of lightness were dead to him now. I felt they were dead to me too with all I had seen. I headed back to Wilson's room and knocked lightly. Come in, a voice said. On entering the room, I was struck by how homely it seemed. The patient next door had been here many years, and yet his room was stark and bare. But Wilson had obviously been here some time too. He had filled it with books and paintings, and even a violin on a stand by the window. 
There was even a drinks cabinet in the corner by the washstand. Ah, it's great to see you, Miles, Wilson said, easing himself up in his bed, which, despite the more cosy surroundings, looked particularly clinical. There was a drip on the frame beside him and a number of hypodermic needles nestling in a kidney bowl on the bedside table. I had a feeling you might come today. He certainly looked ill, or rather, he looked old, not in the startling fashion of the man in the adjacent room. Wilson was thin and haggard. In fact, the skin seemed to hang from him as though he were an elderly man. Gone was the robust physique of the sportsman I had known. A cruel pang of Scheidenfreude welled within me. Hello, Wilson, I began. It's a pleasure to see you again. I mean, not in this state, but it is good to see you again. I was so unused to speaking with Europeans, with all their tedious, evasive etiquette, that I really didn't know how to discuss his illness tactfully. Don't worry, Miles, he smiled. You never were any good at small talk. It's one of the things I liked about you. You're an honest man, even if that is somewhat hurtful at times. It's because of your honesty that I have asked you to come. I entered the room a little further and deposited my coat and umbrella on a low chest at the foot of the bed. I'll take a seat, if I may, I said, settling into a comfortable chair beside the window. Certainly, he replied. Would you care for a cup of tea or something? I can call for some. I'm fine, thanks, Wilson, I said, eager to find out why he'd called me here. What has happened to you? He stared at me with his gaunt face, and I saw how much he had changed. His eyes were dark and distant. I wondered what they had witnessed in these past years. My own eyes must have betrayed a sadness because a single tear fell from his eyes and rolled down his cheek. I have a condition that the doctors are unable to diagnose, he said, still holding the firm gaze. They believe it to be some sort of wasting disease, and they are wrong. I am indeed wasting away, but it is not a disease, and there is nothing in this world that will ever cure it. I'm sorry to hear that, Wilson. I said. But how can you be so certain? Perhaps they will... They will not, he interrupted. They cannot, because what ails me also ails them and you. It is the condition of all humanity. In me it has found physical expression, and I will make sure it is concluded. There was a short silence. There had been an aggression in his voice which I had not expected and had not experienced in all the years that we had been close. You have not really been able to recapture your love of other cultures and their odd beliefs since the war, have you? He said bluntly. I mean, you've travelled. You've no doubt seen surprising and unusual things. But nothing can quite erase the memory of what happened in the war. He was right. He just stared at me with those black unchanging pupils, and spoke the truth that I hadn't had the courage yet to confront. I'm the same, my old friend, he continued. I was captured after my ship went down, and spent the last three years in a prisoner of war camp. I worked in the Sosnovich mine. There in the darkness I discovered something, something that has been with me since. Again there was a long silence, and the solid, unblinking gaze. What? Uh, what did you discover? I asked, absorbed now. Not what you're thinking, not some object, he said, shifting his gaze finally towards the window. It is a sense of things that I found, or rather the sense within things. I began to hear how the basest elements sing with the sound of the first eruption of life. I was used to hearing all manner of beliefs, of theories and philosophies that proposed strange celestial orders and cruel fates for humanity and its verdant earth, but I never expected to hear them from a man such as Wilson. Do you know what holds the most beautiful song? he continued. I shook my head. Works of art. Uh, pass me a book from the shelf, will you? he instructed, pointing to the bookcase nearest to him. I extracted the nearest one I could find, and was pleased to see that it was Sarban's The Sound of His Horn. It had only been published a few years previously, and I had read it only recently, finding it one of the few books that accurately captured the perversity and true horror of the awful regime we had fought against. 
but thinking again now, I wonder if there was not a deeper meaning in my selection of that book. For it revealed a hidden lust and barbarity which lurks within us all, waiting for its bestial moment to come. I handed him the book. Yes, an ideal choice, he said, gripping it in his left hand and clutching it to his chest. I stood by the bedside, waiting for him to say more, but he had closed his eyes and seemed to be breathing slowly and deeply. I waited for what seemed like minutes, and was at the point of calling for one of the nurses, fearing he may have slipped into a coma. Then it began. It seemed as though Wilson became blurred. That is the only way I can describe it. It happened only for a brief moment, as though he had become a sort of gossamer being, as thin and as fast as the wings of a fly. I blinked my eyes a few times, but this odd haze still persisted around him. The rest of the room, and even the bed in which he lay, were clear and focused. A moment later, I heard a tingling noise, much like a tuning fork, clear and sonorous. He turned to me and spoke. There, that's that. What's that? I said, rather frustrated, in this increasingly obscure charade. There is no more Sarban, he said, handing me the book. I took it from him and placed it back on top of the bookcase. I must have looked thoroughly perplexed because he viewed me with what can only be called pity. You'll see, he said. I'm rather tired now. Might I trouble you to visit me tomorrow, just to witness the last movement, you understand? Then we can resume our distance again. I wanted to say no, but I suppose I owed something to our history. Of course, Wilson, I said, gathering my things. You get some rest. On my return to Hastings, I felt unusually tired and considered that the brief episode of Wilson's shaking fit might have had some form of psychic effect upon me. I'd experienced similar during my travels and slept until the early hours of the following morning. I watched the sun slowly penetrate a gloomy morning over the blocks of terraces my window looked out upon. I had resolved to visit Wilson as early as possible to conclude the matter, which now seemed quite absurd. It was clear he had become obsessed, as so many had, with the awful scenes he had endured. It would be a short time before he would pass away, and I would have done what I could to ease that passing. As I gathered some bread and cheese to make a small breakfast on the train, I thought again of Sarban's short novel and pulled out my copy to browse through. Leafing through the pages, I discovered that they were all empty. Not a single word was printed in them. This must be some elaborate hoax, I thought. I had only read the thing a couple of weeks before. Wilson must have dreamt up the scam, believing me to be some credulous moron who would accept any form of spiritual trickery as evidence of the supernatural. I would take the book with me and demand an explanation. I was striding purposefully down the corridors of St Agnes before 10am, determined to discover who was involved in this charade. After a terse knock, I entered Wilson's room to find him on a respirator. The patio doors were open to a small balcony overlooking the back of the gardens. A gentle breeze passed through the room. Of course, I was unable to vent my disgust and headed over to his bedside. He removed the mask and croaked a greeting to me. I responded as politely as I was able, and then I opened the book before his face and flicked through it. Yes, he nodded. Mine is the same. I flicked through his copy, still where I had left it the previous day. It was exactly the same. Blank. I even removed the dust jackets to check the spines, in case he had had some other notebook swapped for the originals. But there on the spine was written the title and author, identical on each copy. "'What is going on, Wilson?' I said, as calmly as possible. He seemed to have gained a little energy now, and was propped up against his pillows. "'I showed you yesterday, Miles,' he said. "'It's all gone now. Not a copy remains in the world. I have liberated it.' "'But surely this is some joke,' I began.' 
A joke? You think I would lie here and joke with what has been revealed to me in the squalid darks of the earth's depths? He said with a growing anger. From darkness I extracted light. We no longer deserve all of culture's gifts, which people have worked for years to reveal from the core of our being. There is nothing remaining that has not had its song darkened by the century's deeds. The world will have to begin art again, and from what it has lost, it will realize the value of everything. What do you mean, Wilson? I asked, struggling to understand his insane diatribe. I dropped the two books on his bed. He picked one up and flicked through it, smiling. Don't you see? There is no more Sarban, he whispered, and soon there will be no Rembrandt or Shakespeare, no Stoss, Turner or Mozart. This world no longer deserves such wonders. I will extract them. The galleries will be empty, their canvases bare, the concert halls will be silent, their scores evaporated. The libraries will be unused halls of nothing, their books blank. Art will finally attain its condition. He closed his dark eyes, and I saw his body shudder in that strange vibration that I had seen the day before. This time it was quite noticeable, even violent, but so entirely unlike any shiver or tremble of the body in even the most evolved and practised shamans of the bizarre tribal rituals that I had witnessed in my travels. It was as though every atom of his body had begun to oscillate, making his entire form into a steadily accumulating blur, and from that haze a luminosity emerged whose origin was indiscernible, but without doubt present. And then I began to hear it. It sounded like that last prolonged sigh with which all beings die. Yet at the moment I had caught it, the sound vanished and all the peripheral sounds. Traffic, the breeze in the trees outside, the voices of passers-by, and the general hum of existence entirely evaporated. I felt enfolded within a tangible silence which wrapped me in its quietude so completely that I questioned my entire existence as separate from that supreme calm. The event of this quiet could have been only the most slight division of a second before I heard again Bertram's breath, and then again the quiet, the breath, the quiet, breath, quiet, all within an instant. Finally, a rushing breath of sound as of a gasping final trumpet call, seemed to enter through the open patio windows, and I collapsed. On coming round, I found Wilson lying there, unmoving. I presumed him dead. His eyes stared upwards, and had regained their original piercing blue colour. His face was contorted into a rictus, indiscernibly dreadful or joyful. Before I was able to cry for assistance, the patient next door began a screaming fit. I was beside the low bookcase at Wilson's bedside, and, through my horror, thought to check the books. I pulled one volume after another from the shelves, blank. In my panic, I scrambled on my hands and knees amidst the growing heap of literature, checking each one before discarding it. Every word had been erased, from the greatest poems to the cheapest potboilers. My cries joined those of the patient next door, him for his lost loved ones, and me for a world of loss. Gathering myself together and drying my streaming eyes, I rushed to the room next door and found the same nurse struggling with the agonised man in the bed. The other nurse, Alice, was there too. She watched with amazement at the gramophone record revolving. The speakers emitted only a faint crackle from where the needle touched the blank revolving disc. It's not working, she yelled, turning to me and appealing for assistance. The record's broken. No, it's not broken, I said, my words flat and hopeless. There's nothing on it to play. There is no more Elgar. There is no more Shakespeare, Turner or Mozart. This is now our condition. The patient thrashed about in the bed, still screaming at the top of his voice. I could hear calls from down the corridor as other nurses gathered to lend assistance. 
I left Alice and her colleagues to do what they could for him. But, from that incredible day of judgment, there remained nothing in the world that would quieten him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. That was DP Watts' The Condition, as read by Alex Vinyl. Alex Vinyl lives in a cottage just outside Cambridge where he writes science fiction and narrates stories. His new fridge is bigger than the cottage itself, like a TARDIS, but containing far more calories. Our second story of the night comes from Carrie Coonan. Carrie is an author, editor, modernist, and geek. Her writing often subverts classic science fiction, blending it with feminism, anti-colonialism, myth, poetry, weird, and more. Plus, she really likes robots. Recent publications can be found in Catterskill Basin Literary Journal, Luna Station Quarterly, Apex Magazine, and Unlikely Stories. In her spare time, she works towards a degree in creative writing to go with her other degrees in fine arts and history of art, listens to music, watches indie films, cooks everything, reads voraciously, and sometimes gets enough sleep. She's online at Carrie Coonan and at CarrieCoonan.com. Links to both will be in the show notes. Now, let's listen to Carrie Coonan's Monsters, Monsters Everywhere. Un poquito más cabra, he asked, pushing the heaping plate of spiced and shredded meat towards me. No, no mas, I replied, holding up my hands in a gesture of, oh, that's enough for me. My Spanish was broken but serviceable, a Mexicali mix of common words I'd have to use and those English words I knew most of the villagers would understand. Paco, who spoke mostly in Spanish but could read and write in English and French, worried too much about his pronunciation to speak to me as much as I'd like. We picked at our conversation all through dinner. I'd assured him that his English was just fine, but like the ESL students I taught that summer in Romania, his nervousness made him drop back into his native tongue too often. Flying halfway around the world for three months taught me I had better skip grad school and find a profession other than teacher, which my father had always said. I'm not sure if he ever forgave me for doing this instead. Certain? Paco asked. Very good meat. Maybe, if I hadn't already heard the story of how they'd found the goat, freshly spilled blood still steaming in the night air, after scaring off something larger just outside the village. You are certain you can kill this monster? He asked, 
and I nodded. Paco, I have been here before, I reminded him. He knew that, of course, since the last time there had been too much tequila and he'd had to remind a drunk idiot that the little woman still carried big guns. Two years ago, but the village had not changed so much in that time, though it blurred a little in my memory with the village before it and the one before that. This is my job, at least until your people move out of this jungle. He shook his head, lined face mournful. How can we? No dinero, no goods to make a move into the city. Here there is food and our well water is still clean. Here there is danger, too. I looked around at the thick stone walls and the open windows shaded by heavy but pitted metal shutters, drawn down at night to keep out the local fauna. Not everyone can be so lucky as your grandparents, Chica. He paused, clearly regretted his tone, and smiled again. So the government sends you to help us, he went on. I knew what he wanted to say was that the Mexican government would rather pay me and a few other hunters to make the rounds of these little southern settlements than to bring a population of children and elderly into a nearby city where they would be a drain on the resources. I tried to tell myself that I wasn't here just so the politicians could pretend they weren't anxiously waiting for the jungle and the beast to eat this place up. Sometimes it worked. A waiter brought out another pitcher of fruit-filled water with the synth cubes that glowed faintly blue while staying permanently cold. They always tasted of plastic to me. I didn't argue. The extravagance of spending the electricity it would take to keep water cold enough to freeze would have taken away from proper refrigeration of their food, and getting fed properly was one of the few perks of this job. Between towns, I live on protein bars and what I find on the road, I said, smiling. Thank you for this meal. Paco grinned, suddenly looking younger than I'd assumed. I was not so sure you would eat these meats, he said. The animals, they have changed so much since I was a child. Now everywhere we have more jaguars than goats. And no cows, no horses, nothing too big to bring inside at night. He glanced down at the mostly cleared platter of scorpion gigantesco, cooked in goat's butter and cilantro. It tasted a bit like shellfish if you could forget the sound of their feet chittering across rocks or the wet, ripping noise of their massive claws tearing through a cow. The only good thing about the scorpions is that they come so close to town we don't have to go into the jungle for meat. I'd eaten mine with warm tortilla, freshly fried by Paco's cook. Delicious, all of it. I am too full. Laughter from the street, and we all turned to look at a group of small children running past. A bright pink dress caught my eye. They can only play together now, Paco said with a sigh as we turned back to face each other. Never alone, and even together some are still missing. When will you hunt the beast? I glanced out again, checking the light. The children were gone. Another hour. I don't know what is hunting you, if it likes the day or if it likes the night, so I will go at dusk and catch it in between. I didn't say that most likely the animal was crepuscular, only coming out at dusk or dawn, because that's when the prey animals move about. I didn't say that these new versions of old dangers weren't just massively bigger, they were massively smarter, too. After almost four years on the road, there was a lot I didn't say anymore. As night fell, I arranged to have two of the villagers drop me out of town in a battered jeep. We drove mostly in silence, them watching the encroaching brush while I braided my hair and tied it up into a knot. If they were concerned about the weapons I was carrying, either they didn't mention it or my Spanish was worse than I thought. One of them did ask if I was bringing enough artillery, and glancing at the AKs he and his friend both carried, I understood why he asked. I shrugged, not wanting to get into it right then. I've had the same argument before, lots of times, but the truth was the Heckler & Coke PSG-1 slung across my back, the Glock 40 cal on my hip, 
and the big-ass knife strapped to my leg were all the weapons I needed. Any more, and I'd rely on them instead of myself. The scent of the jungle rose up to meet us as soon as the engine died, overwhelming the bright scent of oil and metal with its heavy foliage smells. Wet grass, decaying leaves, smells that seemed familiar at first, blending with things I couldn't quite make out. Something sharp like a broken cactus leaf, and something sweet I wanted to identify as fruit. Climbing down from the jeep, I heard singing birds and the faint rustle of smaller animals. I'm okay alone, I said to the men. They stared at me, but did nothing. I waved, smiled big, and said, Adios! That they understood, and moments later, the rumbling engine sounds died away as they drove back to the village. The Lacandon jungle used to be endangered, I've been told. It stretched from Chiapas into Guatemala and had been eaten away by farmers and land developers until only the Montes Azules Biosphere Reserve was left. That was before, of course. Now there weren't enough machetes in Mexico to keep the jungle contained, and it had grown back over the farms, over the developments, and over villages like Naha. Paco and his people, a mix of immigrants and the indigenous Lacandon Maya, built a new Naha, but now that was being eaten up too. It wasn't just the jungle that was eating them, biting into livestock and villagers with sharp teeth. It had to be a big predator, a relative of the jaguar that killed the goat I nearly had for lunch, or else something that had never been native to this giant green maw of a jungle. The chirping of insects was a constant background noise in this place, but with the men in the jeep gone and no village surrounding me, other sounds began to drift toward me. Something in the distance snorted, like a pig hunting for truffles, and a bird trilled high above me. The trees reached up into the sky, towering over me, their tops blending together too far away for me to make out clearly what else might be up there. My neck ached from staring too long, so I turned my attention back to the task at hand and stepped lightly into the wild jungle. It wasn't just the trees that had grown larger. Whatever fueled their change into this living, expanding complex of branches and vines and trunks had encouraged the other plants, too, and the animals were adapting to their new landscape. Mushrooms larger than my forearm grew, step-like, staggered up the sides of trees, and the ants that crawled around them were as long as my fingers. I glanced down at my boots to double-check that my pants were tucked tightly into them. I had made that mistake before, and still had faint scars on my left leg from bites that had gotten infected before they healed. Leaves crunched under my feet as I slowly moved forward. trilled the birds. Bird song and insect noises usually dropped off when a predator was nearby, so I moved faster, less worried about drawing attention to myself than I was about losing the already fading light. The rifle strap rubbed against my chest, pushed the fabric of my tank top into my sweating skin as I climbed over exposed roots and ducked under low branches. I slipped once, grabbing for a vine to steady myself, and ending up with a handful of hissing iguana instead. I pulled it from its perch, hadn't even seen the bastard, a huge specimen almost as long as I was. It wriggled violently, its back spines cutting into my hand, and I crushed its skull against a rock. It spasmed, and I slammed it down again and again until it stopped moving. Enough of this, I said to myself. Time to try bait. I pulled my knife free with my left hand and cut the lizard open in a small clearing, spilling its guts onto the ground. I cut its legs off with quick wax, tossing them a few feet in each direction. Doesn't that smell good, Mr. Monster? I asked the wind as I wiped my blade on a flowering plant with huge blossoms redder than the iguana's blood. I stared at it for a moment, watching it stretch its leaves to catch the last of the sunlight, watching new tendrils unfurl. 
watching it grow right in front of me. A rustle from across the clearing made me jump, drop my hand onto my pistol. I shook my head, clearing my thoughts, and pressed back against the jungle, hiding under a leafy tree I'd picked out moments before. The rustling became rumbling. I shook off a few too curious ants and pulled my pistol free, holding it in both hands. I judged the distance too short to use the rifle effectively and wanted the steadiest shot I could manage. I waited for the birds to stop chirping, for the air to still and the beast to come out into the open so I could kill it. The brush exploded outward as a small herd of beasts rushed into view. I nearly shot the first one but held my breath and froze, taking in the scene. They were massive things, like cows but with snouts that moved wildly about, stubby tails and splayed feet. I struggled to remember what they were called, but the images in my head of faded picture books didn't come with text. The big one at the front, grizzled and scarred, lifted its head to the sky and opened its mouth wide, showing its blunt teeth as it snorted and sniffed the wind. Tapers, I thought. They're tapers. That would make them herbivores, probably, and not the monster I was after. The big one put his face down, looking in my direction with cloudy blue eyes that probably saw very little. The others milled about, somehow satisfied that they weren't in danger. Smaller animals, I guess, were females and even a spotted calf. It looked a little like a deer, like Bambi if his mother had been a sow instead of a doe. A few ate gingerly from the leaves lowest to the ground, and a few others poked at the dead lizard parts but didn't eat. They were impressively large, like everything else in this place, mutated beyond their natural size. I relaxed and lowered my gun. The bird stopped singing. The biggest tapir's nose shot up into the air again, mouth hanging open. The others stopped milling around and moved nearer to him, their heads darting back and forth as if trying to catch the same scent. I looked, too, seeing nothing. A delicate scent drifted in on the light breeze, and I struggled to identify it. The beasts smelled it, too, their snouts rising. As one, they breathed slower, quieted. The daylight was almost gone. I wasn't sure if there was anything to be worried about anymore, and stopped thinking about the reason I'd come out here in the first place. But I was interested in what the tapers were doing. It seemed strange to me, though I wasn't sure why. Holstering my pistol, I gently pulled my night vision glasses from their reinforced case in my pocket. As thin as sunglasses, round like goggles, this little piece of technological advancement costs more than I made in a year, and I was often hesitant to even pull them out. Once on, the glasses snapped the animals into crisp green focus. They were still huddled together, though the sound of something coming closer to us was getting louder. Why don't you run? I whispered. The big one heard me. It shook its head, looking left and right. Its muscles shuddered under its smooth gray coat. Unsteadily, it walked into one of the females, as if drunk. She didn't move. He must be the bull, I thought, the alpha male, watching him shove her again. He leaned against her with his shoulder, knocking the smaller taper over onto her side. She jumped up, shaking her head, and grunted at him. He repeated the action again with the other female, grunting as he shouldered her to the ground. She too jumped up unsteadily and together they broke the spell over the rest of their herd. The scent of tart green apples filled the air. I love apples. My grandmother had an apple tree in the backyard. In the spring it would bloom such delicate flowers, and those flowers became tiny fruits, swelling as the days grew longer and warmer until they were ripe enough to pluck. My cousins and I would clamber into the tree like monkeys while Granny laughed from her back porch. She wore those flower print aprons over her clothes all day long, and we'd drop apples down to her that she'd catch in that faded fabric, held tight between wrinkled hands. She'd baked pies and fresh bread, and every day that I went to visit her, the sky was bright blue. 
I stepped forward into the clearing. I remember that I was smiling, thinking of apples. That big taper saved me. The others had scurried out of the clearing while I pictured lemonade and cold glasses chilled with real ice cubes. Granny had these tiny ice cube trays that made little ice about half the size of standard cubes, perfect for crunching in the mouth of a small child. She was so thoughtful that way. The taper must have come back for me after his herd left because the next thing I knew, the wind got knocked out of my lungs and I flew a couple of feet into the air before landing flat on my back. I coughed, struggling to suck in a breath. Not breathing cleared my head so I could see the monster for the first time. The monster got my savior. I don't know. It was big. So big. I'd never seen a cat like that. It must have been a jaguar at some point in its evolutionary history because it still had that yellow-black fur with black spots, but it rippled when I looked at it. I tried to focus, but all I could think about was being back in Arizona. It didn't even run. I don't know if it could. It was large. Bigger than a lion or a tiger, it must have been eight feet long. My granny used to make us cookies, too, from scratch, with chunks of chocolate that she broke off from a bar, and the cat launched itself at the old herbivore and sank its teeth into the animal's neck. And there was this one time that a bunch of us packed up cookies and bottled water and those green apples, and the taper screamed, its long nose wriggling as it struggled. And we went down to the river, which still had water in it, and then the taper sank to its knees, and the monster that wouldn't hold its shape crunched through the taper's neck. And and we found all these baby tadpoles in the river, and the sun was so bright, and the cat looked up at me with blood on its maw. And my cousin took a couple of them home, and they turned out to be salamanders instead of frogs. And I wanted one, but Mom said, no, a water tank wouldn't be allowed in our building. And the cat walked toward me. And my granny telling my father that I had to learn Spanish, I had to see Mexico, and I had to know where I came from, and Daddy yelling, and I think it's going to eat me next. And I shot it. I shot it and shot it and shot it until it was dead. After a while, the smell of apples went away. The men came back summoned by my tracking beacon, and by the time they had arrived, I'd cleared my head and started a rough examination of the creature. It was a jungle cat, of that I was sure, but one so large I think its mass would make it unable to maintain a killing burst of speed for more than a few seconds, if it even ran at all. Starting to smell of death and warm blood, it lost its blur. The rumbling jeep kept me from pondering it too much longer. You didn't die, Paco yelled from the front seat, jumping down before the engine died completely. I'm glad you came, I said, pointing at the dead cat. We're going to need a bigger jeep. In the end, we lashed it to the hood and leaned back as we drove to balance the weight. Fifteen miles an hour, in the jungle, on a beat-up dirt and gravel road, meant ninety minutes of me unable to relax. If Paco noticed that I kept my reloaded pistol in my hand the whole ride back, he didn't say anything. A shower and a fresh set of clothes later, I tucked my rifle back into its bag and headed out to meet the celebration. A poor village celebrating the death of a marauding monster is a hell of a place to be. Tequila flowed freely, candle lamps threw light and shadow across the pastel-painted walls, and the air was thick with the scent of sweat and cooking meat and lust and apples. Little children ran by laughing. They darted past smiling adults and stole sweets from the feast table, and no one seemed to mind much. I had my boots up on a chair, a cold beer in my hand, and I had just about finished my last round of, You're welcome, I'm just doing my job, de nada, when I saw that pink dress again. God, she was beautiful a tiny smile on her face, dark brown eyes peering up at me. She was just a foot away and I nearly stopped breathing. I could have reached out and grabbed her right then. She looked about six years old. Hello, darling, I whispered. She stared at me, but her pink lips never parted. Do you want to come with me? She didn't struggle as I led her away from the party. I glanced back, but no one was looking for her. 
Where's your mama, little one? I asked, but she just smiled up at me. Have I met your mama today? Is she in the village? Nothing. We reached my room and she touched me, her little fingers pulling against my pant leg. I put a hand on her back, just below her neck, and pushed her gently into my room. Locking the door behind me, I turned to look at her. You're perfect, do you know that? I sat on the bed, my head level with hers, and drew her close. She came to me. I sighed, breathing in the scent of sweetness and fruit and sugar. Your hair, that dress, how could I resist you? She didn't answer. I leaned in and licked her cheek. It felt smooth and the scent of her skin was overwhelming. I grabbed the back of her neck and she jerked at that, but held still, staring with those huge eyes. I touched her lips with my free hand, softly stroking them, slipping a finger inside of her mouth. She bit me, hard enough to draw blood. I slapped her hard and she fell to the ground with a hiss. I looked at the blood welling up from the jagged teeth marks in my finger and sighed again. I'm sorry, sweetie. I know, you're just a baby. I gathered her up, smoothed her hair, and nuzzled her neck until she calmed down. Laying her on the bed with me, I looked into those eyes one more time. You really are perfect. I've never seen anything quite like you. There was a little girl, looked like you, about two villages back, and I had to kill her too. But she wasn't so pretty. So pink and sweet. My hand was big enough to cover her mouth and nose at the same time, and I put my weight behind it, my leg across her body, and held her against me until the movement became silence and the smell of sweet treats faded away. She never said a word. Eventually, my head cleared. I packed my bags. This is going to be harder to explain, you know, I told her. Paco doesn't recognize a monster when he sees one. Weapons, tech, duffel bag. I ran over my checklist in my head like I'd done a hundred times before, getting ready to leave this village and head out to the next one. I took one last look at the bed and the still figure on it. Its black fur matted and its paws pulled in tight and shook my head. I'm really starting to hate this job, I said, to no one in particular. That was Carrie Coonan's Monsters, Monsters Everywhere as read by Summer Brooks. Summer is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use in interviewing guests for Slice of Sci-Fi as a co-host from 2005 to 2009. She was previously the co-host for the Babylon podcast and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi as host in August 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing and voiceover credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Link to Summer's podcast, Slice of Sci-Fi, will be in the show notes. Thank you, Summer. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin, and guest music to play us out from Songs of the Pumpkin Boy. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 